Hi, I am Chitra. I am Madhvi. I am Jyoti. I am Suchitra. Together, we are your hosts on the Edge Podcast. We bring you stories and experiences from our experiments around learning, marketing, and design. These are stories of people, technology, and people interacting through technology. Of what we see, create, and recommend. To the Aam Aadmi, the common man, digital marketing is synonymous with social media marketing, with influencers pushing some brands, or seeing targeted ads within the free apps that they use. These tactics may yield great results for a B2C company, not so much if you are a B2B brand. If your company is selling products or services to another company, there are a different set of tools you can use that yield better results. In this episode, Padmaja Narsipur shares her tales from the trenches, gathered while serving several B2B clients as a senior marketing strategist. On to the show now. Hi Padmaja. Hi Madhvi. Welcome back to this episode of the Edge podcast. I am really happy that we are sitting here in our little studio in Namma Bengaluru with the weather being just right, not too hot, not too cold, said like a true Bangalorean. The only thing that could make this perfect is if we had a steaming hot cup of filter coffee in front of us. That has a very easy fix. <laughs> and let's do that. Padmaja, we have spoken about many things in previous episodes. You have worked with a lot of clients and helped them with both their content and digital marketing needs. In this episode, shall we explore a little bit about how you have helped them with digital marketing, especially your B2B clients? Sure. How did you get into digital marketing? You started Clearly Blue as a content creation firm. What was your journey like from there? We would need to go a few years before Clearly Blue was founded. Before Clearly Blue, I spent about a decade working as a solopreneur or a consultant or a freelancer, whatever the term is. And a significant portion of that decade was spent working with CEOs of startups, basically helping them put together their digital marketing, branding, content, social media, website design. Basically, I used to be like the hand of the CEO okay. to win, uh, you know, Game of Thrones uh, terms, helping them execute a lot of their design, communication and uh, marketing strategies and also working on the strategies themselves. This experience uh, stood me in great stead when I started Clearly Blue. Instead of me as a solopreneur, we as a team went in and worked with quite a few companies from startups, very nascent startups with three co-founders who sat around our table and uh, tried to fix on their value proposition and messaging to very large enterprises which were launching products uh, pan-India. We have worked with a few accounts uh, abroad as well. In a previous chat that I had with Savitra, Mm -hmm. and we have published that as a separate episode, She had said that startups should start their digital marketing journey alongside their very first steps. So even when they are building their website, Mm -hmm. start right there. Mm -hmm. But I know you have had some different experiences. What are your views about this? We have worked with startups. A significant number of them have been in the stealth mode. So when they are in the stealth mode, they are trying to build some IP. Something new and something exciting that the marketplace has not seen before. At that point, they don't want to even put up any kind of detail on their website. 
typically websites of such uh, stealth mode uh, startups would be very bland one pages with some sort of uh, bromide statements about uh, changing you know world hunger solving such problems the collateral they would require if at all would be an investor deck or a pitch deck but to the world very little would be displayed that is the way many uh, startups in stealth mode start otherwise avitra's advice is quite sage you start going to market once you launch your product or service it is very important to ensure that you start and keep a very consistent digital footprint is this true even for your b2b clients yes very much so the key difference i would say between b2b and b2c is that b2c is very driven by nowadays the online campaigns you know ppc and uh, you do uh, pixel retargeting you look through the digital behavior of the customer track them through all the digital properties they navigate in and uh, try to entice them to come back to your portal and buy your product whereas with b2b no matter how big or how small the imperative online uh, would be uh, digital hygiene hmm. which means that you maintain a presence on your chosen platforms you maintain brand sanctity in terms of uh, your brand voice the messaging the colors the logos and all that and you basically keep uh, your presence alive so that if a prospect or a stranger comes and lands on your uh, property let's say somebody lands on your linkedin page or somebody lands on your twitter profile they should get consistent messaging they should see that consistency across all the channels very few b2b decisions are made by looking at your social media presence however the hygiene factor needs to be there so this is all about having brand awareness only it's not customer acquisition or does it also translate into customer acquisition or lead generation it plays a large part in customer acquisition or lead generation so this is a concept that we call omni channel marketing what it means is you maintain your brand message your positioning your product identity and all that across all the channels and you leave a trail such that if somebody's interest is peaked let's say the sales team has gone in and made a pitch or presentation let's say they have encountered you at an event and they picked up a brochure about you and then uh, they go and uh, do their due diligence online you should have ways and means by which they can uh, continue on that journey where they're interested in your product or service so it could mean that there is a landing page for your product where they could sign up to receive more information or download some important uh, information it could mean that they sign up to your newsletter and you start sending them information consistently into their email box you could start sending them offers you could let them know let us say as an agency like clearly blue which does uh, digital marketing only in the b2b space let us say there's a new and exciting social media uh, package that we want to offer to our customers so a newsletter would be a natural place where we would put the details of these packages and we bring them to a landing page and have them convert yes customer acquisition is possible lead generation is possible but it is not the only method and uh, in many cases depending on the product it is probably not the prime method for customer acquisition okay so you do follow it up with offline marketing methods as well yes yes so it's a blend of both it it's a blend but not offline as well offline would be probably primary for many b2b products it depends on the uh, product it could be a saas platform for example think of 
a large uh, SaaS platform where they're doing only B2B kind of sales. Maybe like an automobile industry SaaS platform where there's a lot of, you know, orders being generated online and all that. There might be no offline component at all. Everything is happening online. But the methodology would uh, significantly differ from a B2C campaign. So right. in this case, the primary methods would probably be like uh, drip emailers, newsletters, community, perhaps where you go in and see, you know, all the auctions and bids and things like that. Uh, so it could be a lot of information dissemination uh, versus B2C where it's ads, retargeting, also chasing, uh, you know, vanity metrics, things like that. So it's a very different scenario in the B2B world. Can you describe how it is that you start working with a new client or when a potential client approaches you, mm-hmm. how do you go from there to running a successful campaign from them? What information should they come to you? What information do you help them figure out? When a new client approaches us, we typically do what we call as a discovery meeting where uh, we try to understand where they are in their own product or service life cycle or in the journey of their organization. Depending on where they are in the journey, we offer various different services to them. For example, a lot of uh, startups come to us where they don't have a brand definition yet. And this is very common, especially in places like Bangalore, where a bunch of engineers get together and they code up a storm and, uh, you know, they come up with an MVP and go to market, get some funds. But then what? They don't know what to do next. We have our auto drivers doing just that (laughs) very recently, right? Exactly. The idea is at that point, we do what we call as a branding workshop with them, where we sit with them or typically with their founders and maybe a few key stakeholders. And we do a little bit of introspection. What space you exist in? Who are the possible competitors? What are the uh, messages that these competitors are sending out? And what is it that you stand for that is unique and different about you? And then what we do as what analysis, you know, strength, weakness, opportunities, threats, All this helps us understand the space that the customer is in. And more importantly, it it clarifies a lot of things for our customers. It helps them understand why they must do what they do in terms of marketing. Why, you know, it's so important to define a brand voice. So let's say uh, you're a SaaS platform and you're going after TXOs in, um, you know, large MNCs. You want your brand voice to be quite formal and uh, business formal, perhaps. Whereas if you are a t-shirt company going after uh, young teenagers, uh, the language, the colors, the logo, the entire messaging will be quite different. So it's very important to get that right. So once we do the branding and many a times we help them build their logo, then we go and uh, do the design of the website. The website uh, also carries the brand manifesto forward. And then we look at a bunch of collateral for them. You know, it could be like pitch decks, investor decks, uh, sales uh, training kind of decks, product decks, which their sales teams may perhaps uh, take out into the field. We work on battle cards, explainer videos, which explain what the product does, demo videos or walkthroughs of the product. One huge change that has happened over the last few years is even post-sale, Customer success to a large extent falls under the ambit of marketing okay. in many organizations. So instead of uh, uh, sending out uh, you know instructions for use or how-to manuals, people now prefer to build videos and put how-to videos on a YouTube playlist. 
and then use those videos on WhatsApp marketing. We have worked on large campaigns like this. Post-sale also, ensuring customer satisfaction and uh, customer success falls under the ambit of a uh, lo lot of marketeers. We help them with all of this. Typically, what timelines should a company give before they can start seeing any kind of success leads through their digital marketing when they're in the B2B space? Because the decision maker is not a single person, typically. It's very difficult to put a timeline. These cycles are typically very long tail. So timelines really vary based on what your goal is. Because in B2B campaigns, sometimes the goal is not really to land a customer. It could be, for example, just a brand awareness or a brand building campaign, where what you're looking for is more visits to your website. It could be an event marketing campaign, where what you're looking for is uh, more eyeballs on all your event, lead up to the event, and uh, you already have an event uh, defined, and you just want some publicity for the event. So we have done this. I think it's better explained through some examples. So we worked for a large player in the supply chain space who did a global thought leadership event on the MIT campus every year. We were the event marketing agency and uh, some of the things we did included doing uh, promo-based uh, campaigns on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. The aim was to basically get more eyeballs for the event. We put out a lot of collateral uh, about the thought leaders who were going to attend the event. Their blogs, a few videos and things like that. The idea was to get more eyeballs on that collateral. So make a splash with the event. Make a splash so that uh, people sit up and notice. We sent out a press release and then we did a lot of ambient branding for the venue itself where the event was being held, branding of our customer. Literally, you know, there was like cling film on the walls of the kitchen where people would uh, go and take a break during the conference. We also designed sleeves with our customers' uh, logo and branding for the wine bottles. The next year, the event moved to Napa Valley in California. So we uh, designed sleeves for the uh, bottles. We put up a small microsite for the event. So all sorts of things. All of this is part of a larger, grander plan to establish the brand in the marketplace and also to position it right. The end goal here is not to just simply acquire customers. Depending on what your goals are with the campaign, the actual goals can be met within a few weeks or months, or even it could be as long tail as a year or more. Okay. Padmaja, you are also a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and you're teaching both students in colleges and also doing classes for clients and new customers. Mm -hmm. You're running a cohort-based course on digital marketing. Yes. What does this course involve? Can you also talk about what skills you want them to take away? The cohort-based course, we're calling it uh, marketing leadership, is uh, basically targeted at people who want to build teams, whether in-house or with an agency or a team of freelancers, basically create and execute marketing campaigns. This is uh, looking at it from a strategic point of view, first of all figuring out what the goals of the organization are and how marketing can support those overall organizational goals. And then secondly, looking at it tactically in terms of what sort of team do you need to execute these goals? What are the tools and technologies out there? What are the metrics for success that you can use uh, to track the success of your uh, ongoing campaigns? And basically how to achieve those goals. Those are the uh, facets we cover in this course. 
Okay, so what skills are essential for a digital marketing team, for somebody building a, this team from scratch? I always advocate that a growing startup teams should write their own content. Content is very key in this era of content that we live in now. Any content writer who joins a digital marketing team early on in their journey will only act as a filter for the founders. So the founders, if they blog or speak or put out articles, put out videos, whatever they do, if they control the narrative, their founder story, the brand story, the product story comes out very well. Content is one of the essential skills that any digital marketing team should have. Second, I would say is design. So when you are looking at building a brand and not just a product or a solution, it is very essential that you are on brand. By that I mean that you have a very careful choice of logo, colors, things like that. This probably most uh, companies start paying attention to once they have gone to market and they have acquired a few customers. It's perhaps okay to start with a basic brand definition, but as you grow bigger, adding a design uh, person to your team uh, becomes very vital. The third person would be somebody I would call like a marketing strategist or a marketeer who knows the landscape of digital marketing. They know what channels the product or brand should be active in. For example, most B2B brands don't need to have a significant presence on Instagram. That is a very youth-focused uh, sort of channel. But Although it is you would... for anyone with a B2C focus, right? Oh, absolutely. But you will be surprised. Companies like GE have a very robust uh, Instagram presence. They're doing that for brand building, which is perfectly fine. But if you have limited dollars and you're a B2B brand, I would prioritize LinkedIn and Twitter first over Instagram and Facebook. So every uh, channel online has its own uh, culture, has its own language. Uh, you need to see how your brand will integrate with that channel's culture. That is the duty of the marketeer, to take on this onus and to navigate these different channels and figure out which are the best channels to basically be active in. That is the job of the marketeer. So between these three people, I think a lot of the digital marketing can be done. The fourth person, if you wanted to add somebody, the fourth role rather, would be that of a video person. Oftentimes, design folks take on that role, but as your brand grows more sophisticated and you want more videos out there, you perhaps want to add a video role to the team. Particularly now, we all know that YouTube is the number two search engine in the world. It's very valuable to put out short videos. I believe the latest statistic is that more than 80% of the internet traffic is video now. So everybody is getting onto the video bandwagon, particularly with 5G proliferating. So that would be the fourth essential role. Then there are a bunch of roles like, you know, online reputation management, like a PR specialist, a social media person. All of these, in my mind, are derivatives of these four core roles. Content, design, marketing, and video. Okay. How does a B2B company build trust? For a B2C company, they may have reviews on Google or on their Instagram page or something. So for a B2B company, some of it is in the Google reviews. Uh, okay. Let's not, uh, you know, beat around the bush with that. Some of it is in the reviews, your customer reviews, for example. There are, as we know, uh, sites dedicated to reviews. In India, there's mouth shut. Product and, Hunt? Product Hunt would be a very valuable one. I think AppSumo also covers reviews. Quite a few uh, websites like that. 
There's also the buzz on online communities that you can try to control. If not control, you can try to participate. Like Quora, Reddit, a lot of people put out reviews over there. Now, one important thing is the whole B2B scenario when it comes to trust is governed by another word, which is authenticity. Mm -hmm. So every piece of collateral you put out there must have that underlying premise of authenticity. You cannot put out things which your product or service does not do and get away with it. Because people will soon find out and they will post a scathing review somewhere which will come back to bite you. Authenticity is very key in this whole thing. All the content you put out across all the channels need to be rooted in the truth. The other thing is, particularly with growing and bigger B2B brands, is they also have to be very careful about their employer branding. Because if we look at uh, sites like Glassdoor or Ambition Box, it's very easy for disgruntled employees to go and post uh, reviews anonymously. I have seen reviews where they say the CEO has no vision, the product team doesn't know what they're doing, engineers are stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea. I've seen a lot of reviews like this. Do those reviews actually reflect on the product or the service as well? Not primarily, but perhaps secondarily. If uh, you are being evaluated as a possible partner by a large customer, by their procurement, they will go and look at your glass door and ambition box. Okay. So I would want to very carefully manage as an employer, my employer ratings and branding on these sites. There are two persona basically, one as an employer, another as a product or a platform provider. So those are the two main things I would pay attention to. The third dimension, which also works a lot in the favor of B2B marketing, is the thought leadership put out by the uh, spokespersons or the stakeholders, the leaders of the company. Thought leadership is uh, very uh, crucial to B2B success because oftentimes these people tell the stories of the brand. They give out uh, points of view, what we call POV articles about uh, happenings in the industry. So their voice matters. Many a times they carry their own personal brand into the conversation. So it adds a lot of weight to the conversation. Such uh, branding coming from the spokespersons, it can elevate a B2B brand from so-so to something which is really super. Maverick stuff also works. Look at how Elon Musk is transforming Twitter. Hmm. The guy is going crazy on Twitter. He's tweeting left, right and center. But the fact of the matter is, as of yesterday, November 7th, Twitter has had the highest ever usage, the highest ever in their history, period. You know, many advertisers are being very cautious and they're holding back their Twitter budgets. But with this kind of usage, Elon Musk is guaranteed to have all the advertisers flooding back to the platform. So it need not always be state POV articles, right? If you have a maverick leader like uh, Elon Musk at the top, or look at what Richard Branson did with uh, the whole Virgin brand. He added, you know, that flamboyance and daring and whatever he did, you know, jumping out of planes. He brought all that flamboyance back into the brand. Or back home, you can look at uh, Vijay Malya, who till he had a spectacular nose dive, maintained that king of good times branding very, very well. There's lots of ways the spokespersons of the brand, the spokespeople help uh, with the branding and the B2B placement of the whole product or service. So for a small or a new company, mm -hmm. you suggest that the founders or the leaders also do some self-branding along with uh, brand awareness for their company? 
I would really recommend that for small companies, first of all, they say no publicity is bad publicity. Mm-hmm. That being said, it depends on the founder's uh, comfort levels also. Many of them may prefer to hide behind the quote. But it always helps if one of the founders or co-founders, if they're good with communication skills, if they are personable and they can do the uh, media outreach, it really, really helps the brand. I have been on brand building exercises with some of my customers where we have gone to, you know, the offices of Tech and Herald and uh, Times of India and so on and so forth. Initially, these PR exercises are just like uh, relationship building meetings where uh, they sit across the table, try to understand what your brand is, where, where your product is. And what they will do is next time there is an event happening in that space, let's say it's EdTech, you know, Baiju's failed spectacularly. What they will do is they will call you and ask you for a quote. This is the way small insertions, you know, if you are personable, if you maintain contact with the press, small insertions start happening in economic times. And then you write or get ghostwritten article with a byline that goes out into the press. This is how traditionally over the last 50-60 years it was done. But now in this era, it's a golden time. You can just seize the initiative, make a splash on LinkedIn, come out with some really startling POVs, points of view, which are very different or contrarian to what the whole world thinks and make an impression on LinkedIn. You do not need to rely on a PR agency now. But your question is, yes, bang on. It does help to have one of the co-founders at least take this initiative. Perfect. Thank you for that. Typically, when you start out as a small company, you have a do-it-yourself or a DIY approach for most things. And that's how maybe a lot of us have started our digital marketing companies too. Mm -hmm. When they finally realize that things are getting out of hand or things are getting more than they can handle by themselves, they're going to reach out to some other professionals, maybe an individual or an agency like Clearly Blue. Mm -hmm. What are the problems that they come to you with? Typically, what are the things that you have to first educate them all or the problems that you need to fix at that stage? Like I said, Madhvi, they come to us at different points in their journey. Sometimes, you know, we have had co-founders come to us asking us to build a pitch deck, a very initial pitch deck. And when you talk to three different co-founders, I worked uh, with a team like this in the telehealth space where the three of them came to our office They sat and uh, spent what seemed like days, it was probably multiple sessions over uh, several days, where they actually argued and bickered and debated and settled on their value proposition. Because each of them had a different take on that pitch deck. So if you talk to a couple of members in my team, they'll tell you that those 16, 17 slides we built were perhaps the hardest in our lives. They might have been the best of friends and, you know, they might have discussed building this product over uh, several cups of coffee or beer or whatever it is. But it's only when the pitch deck comes into the picture and you see words on the page that it becomes real. And then each person's thought process gets in. Oh, but I thought it was this. I thought we were... That actually building a pitch deck, uh, we have helped a lot of companies with that. That helps them take the first step into uh, perhaps seeking funds or even pitching to customers, going to market and so on. People have also come to us, like I said, at more uh, mature stages of their journey where they have wanted us to run their events for them, do the marketing part of the events for them. We have also done what we call as digital hygiene campaigns or keep warm campaigns where uh, they are not really in a mode where they are going out there and seeking customers. 
but they want to ensure that that hygiene of being online is maintained. Okay. So we do maybe you know some six or eight posts monthly, uh, which are on brand, on topic, and uh, we schedule those posts and they keep going out. And uh, the agency acts as the first point of contact in case somebody engages, if they ask a question or makes a comment or something like that. These are what are called as uh, keep warm campaigns. Then there are actual lead generation campaigns. So these are uh, quite radically uh, different from uh, most of these other ones in that they are actually socking money at it. They would actually make posts or a string of posts and uh, they look at the target persona of the person whom they are going to, uh, trying to convert into a customer. Let's say you are running a Facebook campaign for example. So Facebook's uh, ad manager offers a lot of capabilities where you can target by interest, by geography, by education levels, all of that. You build the persona of the population that you want to target. You set up a few uh, posts, you boost those posts and you start sending it out to them. And perhaps, you know, from that post, uh, they go to a landing page. Some action happens on the landing page. They either download a piece of collateral by giving their email address or they sign up to do something. Another uh, thing people approach us for is drip emailers. So these are a series of emailers that goes out to a database. So there could be a narrative or a story told from one email to another. So you maybe send out a teaser first, then you send out uh, information about the product. Then in the third email, you send out information why uh, this product is unique or different. And in the fourth email, you make them an offer. Presumably by then they're hooked and they actually want to talk to you. A drip emailer, I always like to call it, it's like pearls on a string. Mm. One email doesn't work very effectively, but the entire set is very effective. And given short attention spans, it is giving them bits and pieces over time. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Uh, previously, you know, we used to dress up these drip emailers with a lot of graphics and templates and stuff. But now people, I think, have found their way to making it very simple ultra short and text based. You just want to get the attention of the reader. That's about it. One of the most effective pieces of content marketing, especially in the B2B space, is a newsletter. So this is a periodic piece of communication that, you know, presumably somebody is already subscribed to your newsletter or, you know, you have them opt in and it goes out ever so often. Like it could be once a week, once a month, once a quarter, whatever the cadence is. And it is very, very effective at remaining visible and relevant in your customer's uh, eyes. If you do a newsletter with a lot of good content, selling is not the prime objective, rather sharing is, it is very, very effective. It's essentially like going into somebody's house, uh, sitting on their sofa and having a conversation with them. None of the other pieces of newfangled uh, digital marketing uh, achieve the same effectiveness as a newsletter. Padmaja, how should B2B companies budget for digital marketing? It's usually a mix of digital and traditional methods. Does it change domain to domain? There are lots of variables and there's no single uh, blanket answer for this. What I would say is a marketeer should set up a roadmap with their board or CEO or their leadership and figure out what are the goals for the next one year or you know 18 months, some uh, significant period of time and then uh, see what is the budget allotted to them to achieve those goals. Now based on the budget, uh, the marketeer can then look at the panoply of tools available and the panoply of techniques available including 
events, roundtables, conferences, social media, drip. Uh, you know, you may want to buy a database for a drip, for example. Lots of these ingredients go into building your digital marketing plan or roadmap. Get the budget from your management, then look at the landscape and understand who your target persona is very well. Understand which are the uh, digital properties they go to typically. This may involve almost uh, doing some amount of user research. Let's say you're in the supply chain space. What are the three or four supply chain properties that typically people go to pick up news and information from? You want to have a presence in the, those properties. Then you start making uh, you know, your budget allocations. Let's say you figure out that these are the two properties where I want 10 of the articles from my company uh, spokespeople to go out in the next one year. Then you approach those two properties and you figure out uh, you know, how much it will cost to land your articles on those uh, properties and what is the payoff. Maybe they will share their database with you. Maybe they'll share some analytics with you. So you make those trade-offs then, whether it's you know property one versus property two, whether you're going to spend money on a PR agency versus doing something direct on LinkedIn, whether you'll maybe host some small round tables across different geographies and so on. It's a matter of starting with your goals, your budget, and then what are the tactical plays you want to undertake to achieve those goals. You mentioned persona, mm-hmm. and I would like to explore that a little bit. Mm-hmm. In the B2C space, you're trying to figure out what is the typical characteristic of the person who is going to consume your service or product. Right. What is the equivalent in the B2B space? What does persona mean for you? You're looking at a company, right? So what characteristics do you draw? So in the B2B space, there are uh, actually two, three different persona. Let's say you're a product marketing person. You're a product marketer who's actually out to market the product. In that scenario, there are two different personas that you should uh, think of. One is the user of your product and second is the buyer of your product. Not necessary that both of them are the same person. So I'll give you an example. Let's say Upgrad. Okay, Upgrad is a giant in the edtech space. And uh, they work with a lot of enterprises, could be technology companies, who are actually uh, wanting to train their engineers. So I know Upgrad has these programs in their uh, Upgrad business division. They go in and train fresh graduates from engineering colleges who work for, you know, the big five. Could be TCS, uh, Cognizant, uh, Infosys and so on. Infosys, of course, has their own uh, training program. So in that case... The users would be the learners of this program, Upgrad's uh, e-learning programs, whereas the buyers would be the procurement folks of the big five. As Upgrad, when you do the B2B marketing, how would you convince the procurement teams that Upgrad's uh, offerings or solutions are better than anybody else in the market? Considering that this is procurement, for them cost is a big factor. So you basically delineate the persona of the procurement folks and what their objectives are. For them cost is a factor and for them also learning outcomes is a huge factor. If I were a product marketer in Upgrad, I would be very data driven. I would show them how learning outcomes three months after going through an Upgrad course are better the behavior or productivity of these engineers three months after completing an upgrade course are better than somebody else's courses. So very data-driven collateral 
a lot of uh, emphasis on the economics uh, because price would be a huge driving factor. Those would make up the components of my marketing campaign with uh, these big five. And this is the same thing like what Adeptic is doing. The cohort-based courses are purchased by somebody else. The learners are separate. Yes. So the consumers are different from the buyers. Absolutely. You talked about analytics. Mm-hmm. You talked about like having a pulse on different things, trying to figure out the market and trying to figure out what your customer needs, all mm. of that. Do you think this is art or science? Oh, <laughs> that's the million dollar question, right? I just want your take <laughs> on it. You do make a lot of decisions on data, just like you mentioned. So yes. What is yes. I think it starts off at, as science because we all like to fancy ourselves as a very data-driven and things like that. But end of the day, uh, there's a huge art component in it. So if you look at a digital marketing campaign as a whole, I would say there's more art than science in it. But it's a happy blend of both. I mean, uh, look at this era, right? I feel incredibly blessed to be living in such an era where, you know, your content writing skills, your communication skills, they are so important. Yes, you might be data-driven, you will be doing, you know, aggregate persona, you'll be looking at segments of the population, you know, what are the likes, dislikes, and uh, all that fun stuff. But end of the day, what you're trying to push is a blog, and that blog better be very well written for somebody to engage with it. So I think uh, people who are, you know, that left brain, right brain kind of people who are both creative as well as data-driven, this is a golden era for such people. That's my personal (laughs) take on it. Perfectly fine. And I think we can end this podcast on that note. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the insights. Thank you. Thanks, Madhavi. It was very nice talking to you as usual. subscribe to the edge podcast on your favorite podcast channel we are on google itunes spotify stitcher and more if you like this episode please share it with your friends if you have stories to share and want to be featured on our podcast write to us at podcasts at adepticlabs.com